Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. We cover a lot of topics. We have covered everything from violence against pets to uh, transgendered issues to uh, social justice issues. But primarily, we talk about intimate partner violence. We talk a lot about the victims and the processes and the programs. We don't talk as often about the perpetrators. And so we're going to do that today. And with me is Dr. Christopher Murphy. He's a psychology professor from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He's directed counseling programs for DV offenders for 25 years. So he knows a lot about them. He also knows a lot about them because he has also done a lot of research studying. uh, He spent his professional career studying offenders and counseling strategies and programs for offenders. So we're going to pick his brain and we're going to learn about perpetrators today. Welcome, Chris. And you said it was okay for me to call you Chris. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Good. Thank you. It's so so nice to have you here. Um, we did a show a, a year and a half ago, I think maybe, um, uh, talking about perpetrator treatment programs. And the gist of that program from a person in New York who has run programs for a long time is that basically programs for perpetrators do not work, but the courts require them. And so she got involved to try and do the best she could under those circumstances. Let's start out with that that premise. Do programs for offenders in domestic violence work? In general terms, I would say yes, but not nearly as well as we would like them to. So my uh, overview of what I think the research says, and this is based on summaries of quite a lot of studies, um, is that people who uh, attend these programs tend to have uh, less run-ins with the law after their they complete them. So they tend to be less likely to be rearrested for domestic violence charges and for other criminal offenses. When you interview the partners, you don't always get as positive uh, uh, an outcome as when you look at, for example, the criminal justice outcomes in from the programs. And one of the questions that's, uh, you know, on a lot of people's minds is, you know, why is that? And then the other thing I would say is that not all programs are the same and not all counseling interventions for uh, domestic violence offenders are equivalent. So in recent years, there's been a number of innovations in the field, which have been shown to have some positive or very encouraging results, um, perhaps relative to what the traditions in the field were. And I can certainly get into a little of that with a little of those, what those are if you're interested. But just I would say that I'm, I'm encouraged, but the, the glass is maybe not half full. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we don't have a lot of alternatives um, for what to do with offenders because we can't just lock everybody up. And a lot of these individuals may be first time offenders or um, there's a lot of variation in the people who, who offend. Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to have the counseling programs. And I think we need to work really hard to figure out how to make them more effective and how to make what uh, the services uh, also more helpful to the survivors. Well, I want to talk more about those recent innovations, but in a little bit. Uh, first of all, I wanted to talk about the differences in the outcomes that you uh, you talked about. One is the law for rearrest, and uh, mm-hmm. um, that seems to have a, a better 
outcome for people who have attended these programs. But uh, the partners, uh, they don't seem to see a whole lot of difference. One of the criticisms that my previous guest said about um, programs is that basically it just tells them how to talk the talk and gives them a vocabulary that sounds makes them sound better than that what they are. Is that a fair comment, you think? Uh I don't think so because I don't, I think that change is difficult and change takes time. And so being able to quote unquote, talk to talk is part of the process. It's obviously not a sufficient outcome or what we want. Um, so uh, I think that the programs um, are probably helpful for some reasonable proportion of the people who come. But one of the problems we are always facing is that there are some um, individuals who don't seem to respond to the programs at all. And so they don't seem to change their behavior at all. And unfortunately, some of them may be some of the most dangerous and severe offenders. So when you look overall, like if you just take a group of people who were put on probation um, and followed over time after an arrest for domestic violence, probably 60 to 70% of that group from what we know is not going to um, hit their partner again during a reasonable follow-up period, like say a year. So when we look at, and we ask the question, are the counseling programs effective? They have to do better than that. They have, they have to influence the 20 or 30 or 40% of individuals who are at risk and will reoffend. So we have to, we have to actually get, uh, you know, for the typical research we do looking at whether there's continued violence, it's critical to actually look at, you know, are we affecting those people? And, you know, when you look at the arrest data, it looks like, yes, we are reducing the likelihood that they'll continue to offend. The, the issue with regard to the partners is that um, the programs may also be making it more likely that people stay together with a partner. And they may also be making it more likely that they have contact with partners, for example, through visitation. So it's possible, we don't have great data, but it's possible that the programs are having some impact in reducing abuse and violence and also having some impact on making people more likely to um, stay with a, with a partner, which makes, makes it seem as when we follow those partners, maybe it seems that we're not having as much of an impact as we would because the people who don't go to the programs may be more likely to move on to a new victim. Okay, so uh, basically you're telling me three different things. One is that attendees uh, seem to have less rearrests, um, or uh, that they their partners don't say that they have improved as dramatically as you would have expected, and that they do tend to stay in contact more with the um, victims. Yeah, that last part we don't have good research on, but it's been a hypothesis that we've had as to what's going on. Okay. Um, it, and so the programs may be having kind of both of those sorts of effects, making it more likely that someone would reunite or take a risk to stay in the relationship. And so there's some danger there that we have to be aware of as well, that we don't want the programs to be in, you know, creating false hope. Or, yeah. or giving people a sense that someone's cured or changed when they're not. Mm -hmm. And when, you, when people interview the survivors, they really do get a wide range of responses. Some survivors are happy with the programs and the results and feel that their partners have made significant change. Some of them feel that their partners use their experience in, the, in these programs um, as a new tool to uh, mistreat and abuse them. For example, telling them that the guys in my group said you're crazy or, you know, they say it's all your fault or so or, you know, other things that are, you know, 
very problematic. And so whenever we talk about this, it's hard to paint with one brush because we're really getting a lot of differences in response to the programs and a lot of differences in, in satisfaction with them. And the research is often very narrow because we often just ask, you know, has there been physical violence again as the only outcome that's often looked at? Um, so other things about the quality of life, feelings of safety, um, uh, you know, uh, concern. So we get a lot of variation in what survivors sort of feel about that, where some of them are, um, I think, feel positive benefits and some of them don't. Okay. Well, and that brings us to, and, and I want to get to those innovations in, in treatment, but let's back up a little bit and talk about, you've mentioned twice now that some types of offenders benefit, some types of offenders do not. I'm rem trying to remember the study uh, that came out of the University of Washington very early on, probably 25, maybe even 30 years ago, uh, about the types of offenders. Now, as I recall, it was one of the first um, studies that showed that there were, at that point, two distinct types of uh, offenders. Are you familiar with what I'm referring to? Since I can't. Remember. Yeah, there's been a few different studies about that, and use different different ways of typing. But it, but all of the studies seem to identify uh, a group of offenders that have some antisocial characteristics, or um, uh, and often are generally violent. Mm -hmm. So they might be violent both within and outside their relationships. Um, that group tends to be more likely to have had maltreatment as children. Um, and um, they probably just have more ingrained sort of difficulties managing um, their response to, to situations and conflicts without becoming aggressive and violent. Mm -hmm. And it is the case that we see much higher um, recidivism rates, no matter what kind of data we look at for that group of individuals. Um, and so it's also the case that certain other mental health problems and substance use problems are also predictors of poor response to these treatments. Mm -hmm. So people who have, you know, uh, who routinely abuse alcohol, um, people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and maybe are certain other mental health con conditions, they're also at increased risk to continue being abusive and violent mm -hmm. um, after they go through the programs. So part of what I've focused on in my research is trying to isolate what some of those factors are to see if um, we can, in, in, you know, address them to get better outcomes. Okay. Again, speaking of UW, since that's in my neighborhood, uh, several years ago, there was another study. I happened to know the researchers and I just told them I just didn't, I, I just couldn't buy into the study because they had a great response. Um, they asked abusers to self-identify, join the treatment program, and they had a tremendously successful rate um, uh, as, as however they measured it of success with that program it seemed to me that they were picking the cream of the crop, if you will, because how many abusers self-identify, you know, as abusers. Um, so if you've got somebody who recognizes that he has a problem, he's more likely, it seems to me, to benefit from working on that problem. So if your study is only dealing with that, uh, you know, I think you have to be pretty clear that that's all you dealt with. And I, I can't imagine too many abusers who are willing to stand up and say, yes, yes, I've abused, you know, I've done this and I need help. Somebody give me help. It, it in my experience, doesn't just happen that, that much. Have you seen that in some of the studies where it's kind of <clears throat> um, Yeah. So, um, so I, in the ideal world and the kind of social change that I think we need, 
it would be wonderful if we had people seeking help voluntarily for these behaviors. So I, I think that would be a, that's a goal that I think we should we should all have to, to to you know find a way so that people will be willing to acknowledge that they're having problems with anger and aggression and violence and abuse and control in their relationships and to get help for that. The reality, as you kind of identified, is that almost all of the programs that are out there have at least 90 or 95% of their participants coming from the courts. So it is in the real world, there isn't that many there, yet, there aren't that many people who, um, who self-identify. There are efforts in certain systems to try to change that. So there's, there's some new research going on in the VA system, for example, to try to screen more for um, these problems in primary care or in other treatment clinics for people with addictions or post-traumatic stress, et cetera, and to try to get them into um, uh, you know, groups, for example, with other veterans. Um, and so there, there, is, there is some hope that maybe if we can get to people and if medical providers, for example, are willing to routinely ask about these sort of things and in a non-stigmatizing way, try to get people help, you know, maybe that, you know, that could be something we could all be working towards. But you're absolutely right in the, the way it is right now, mostly we're, we're the vast majority, we're working with court mandated individuals who were told they had to get counseling, not, not on their own accord. And within that group, they still vary in terms of whether they see a need for change. Some of them do acknowledge that this is wrong and they shouldn't act this way. And then a lot of them don't. Um, and, and they blame other people, they blame the partner. Um, they, they don't take responsibility. And so that's always the first order of business in any counseling program is we have to address their motivation to change. And we have to try to enhance that motivation so that they'll be um, engaged in, in, a, in an, a process of intentionally trying to change their behavior. I wanna back up a little bit more, but I'm gonna come back to some of the innovations in the programs and some of the ways that they work um, in, in a minute. One of the questions, um, that we well the first question whenever you talk about domestic violence uh, that people who are not familiar with it ask is why doesn't she just leave <laughs> the second question is why does he do that why does he do that <laughs> can you give any kind of uh, answer to that there's a lot of theories and a lot of um, suggestions and ideas um, but you know, it's, it's sadly I don't really have a simple, comprehensive answer. There seem to be a lot of factors that go into this. Um, there's certainly a lot of cultural and social dimensions that promote the notion that people have um, the right to mistreat their relationship partners, that men have the right to control um, women. There's certainly uh, uh, a history of sort of notions that people, that this is somehow okay, that, that this can happen in your, um, that you, ha you have that entitlement um, to do that, right? So there's some of that that's part, I think, behind the scenes in a lot of situations. Um, there's also a just tremendous difficulty that a lot of people have self-regulating the intense reactions they have in relationships. So, you know, one of the common themes in a lot of these situations is jealousy. And people, you know, lots of people have jealousy. And you can still ask, well, why, why do some people use that to control and abuse a partner where others don't? 
Um, and, and it seems like some people just are not very good at being able to deal with and regulate those internal experiences and emotions to be able to, to manage their reactions effectively. So a lot of what we do in the counseling programs is help people really understand what's going on with inside themselves and, and in their relationships um, that is, is leading them to act this way. Uh, and then how can they cope with those things more effectively? Um, and how can they interact in a way that's just not abusive and controlling? Um, some of the people we work with, you know, they, they have a whole lifelong history of using aggression. Um, that's been a coping strategy, a survival strategy for a lot of people who grew up in very difficult circumstances or rough um, neighborhoods and situations. So some of them, it's sort of an uh, overlearned response to any feeling that they're disrespected or that they are um, being mistreated or that they're not getting their fair share or what they're due. So um, for some people, you know, that is sort of a, just an overlearned aggression is a kind of uh, first line response to to things they don't like, to situations that are unpleasant. Um, and, and, and it does, for a lot of people, it's an effort to turn off bad feelings. So I have a bad feeling, whatever that is, jealousy or frustration or, or anger, and I want to get rid of it. And the way I get rid of it is to try to actually force and coerce you to do something different, to change, to act in the way I think you should be acting. Um, and if that doesn't work, then I'll be willing to escalate that to abuse and violence. I think that's what's going on inside a lot of people's minds. It's not a very coherent answer. It's not a very simple answer. I wish I had a nice clean theory, but then stress and other things all play into that as well and make it more likely that somebody who's prone to act in these ways will, um, will do that You know, under, under those sort of conditions. Um, and, and alcohol and drugs also can factor into not ex exercising self-control um, in situations where someone has feels that that impulse um, to act abusively or aggressively. Well, if I can make an observation here, totally unscientific observation, but one that seems to have held through in my life, nasty behavior wins. People really don't want to deal with you if you're nasty. They'll accommodate you. They'll do whatever it takes to get you out of their lives and uh, or out of their faces for that moment. And so it seems to me there must be an awful large factor of positive reinforcement for aggressive behavior. It works. Mm -hmm. And if it works, why would you change it? Yeah, that's a very insightful observation. And what we tend to find, and we often spend time in our groups discussing this, is that there's often short-term reinforcers like you're talking about so that someone gets what they want right away. They get the argument to stop or they get the partner to, you know, back down or they get the, the partner to do something that they, that they want or they avoid having this bad feeling that they're having for, for uh, that temporary short um, kind of immediate reaction in the long term most domestic violence offenders are very clear that they've experienced a lot of negative consequences from their behavior, which is interesting because a lot of people don't realize that. But we would have, in the beginnings of our programs, we always devoted a session to talking about what we call the pros and cons of acting abusively. And the first reaction is that people say, well, I don't know what you mean by pros. You don't get anything out of this. Look, it's I've had to go to jail. My partner's left me. My kids are afraid. They, they have a whole list. They'll generate a long list of actually the negative consequences. But we call that a self-control uh, 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 self trap where you get a short-term positive gain and long-term negative, negative consequences. So a lot of abusers are actually in a self-control trap 
where their immediate reactions and their immediate responses are reinforced, but they but they're not in the long term getting the kind of relationships they want to have or the kinds of situations that they really want to be in. I have had experience with abusers who are um, just the opposite. They are extremely tightly wound. They are extremely controlled. They do mm. not lose control. They make the choice to do their behaviors. Is that a separate type of, of uh, abuser? Is that something you've run into? Or? Yes, yes, absolutely. We often associate um, those individuals with being very obsessive, perfectionistic, um, rigid, um, and um, so that control is a theme, you know, that's, that's um, in pervading their, their, uh, their dealings with other people oftentimes, and certainly their dealings with their relationship partners and children. So that is, that is a, a pattern. Um, but I would still argue that internally, those individuals are still having tremendous difficulty regulating emotion. They're just coping with it in a way that's a little bit different by hyper controlling their feelings and trying to hyper control everything around them. So we still work with those individuals to actually be able to process and experience um, the internal, uh, the, the feelings they have in their internal um, reality without trying to get rid of all of that sort of discomfort that comes from not being in control or, or from chaos or confusion or dirt or disorder. So uh, is that getting at the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, that, that's, yes. that's definitely a, yeah. Uh, definitely sort of a type or a problem that we see yeah. in that population as well. And I would think that that would be the type, if you will, um, that would be most resistant to uh, therapy or counseling. Am I making a leap there? Or? Uh, yes, especially, well, uh, in, in some ways, yes, because they often have an ideology, almost a belief system as to why they're right you know, why it's right for me to act this way. And they often use a lot of um, emotional and verbal and other forms of control, just a lot of, you know, you know, nasty and negative criticism, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so you, I think for a lot of those individuals, we have to sort of get at, you know, whether that really, they, you know, that really is a proper way to look at the world and, um, and to help them sort of shift some of that so that they then can become motivated to actually learn to tolerate some of the discomfort and distress that they're um, that they're um, uh, that's motivating them to sort of engage in that kind of consistent, persistent control. Well, and I I think again, I'm not a scientist here or even a researcher, but it seems to me that society must reward that kind of behavior. I mean, when we think of the strong man, the decisive man, the uh, the, the the leader, you know, I mean. It, I'm old enough where I recall where if you had seen a leader cry, that would have been his, the end of his career. Now we see that a little bit more. Um, sometimes I think it's a bit contrived, but we see it. And no, no, now we think, oh, that just adds to his, his mystique, his humanity. But I still see an awful lot of pressure on men to buck up and take charge and be in control and don't, you know, hobnob with emotional stuff. And is, am I just hanging around with the wrong people or is this a still a typical thing for men? Yeah. The man box is pretty small, right? Yeah. It's pretty tight to, to what, what we're allowed to sort of present uh, publicly to others, mm -hmm. how we have to demonstrate that. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, yeah, we see that in, in various versions, if you will, or various manifestations 
the, you know, the successful kind of business person or, um, you know, people who are really good at very organized and controlled types of uh, jobs and situations. But we also see it sort of in having to have a tough persona for someone who may have maybe grew up in a very dangerous um, neighborhood and, and had to really kind of be tough to survive and, you know, sort of presenting themselves as in control of the situation and not being willing to take any crap off anybody, right? Yes. yes. So there's a lot of versions of that, but I think it, a lot of it does come back to that sort of idea of the man box being, you know, a pretty narrow little frame that we stick within where we don't show weakness and vulnerability. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does and that I, man box, as you call it, is that a component of a man who crosses that boundary into abusive behavior? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things we find is that a lot of uh, abusive men suppress emotion, that they, that that is a common theme. Um, and so, the, you know, the kind of person who say, I'm not angry, I'm not angry. I'm, you know, they're obviously angry. Everybody around knows you're angry, but they themselves, they're telling themselves that that's not what's going on inside them. And so that there's a lot of that. And that, and that, again, that's another version of that poor skill in emotion regulation, in dealing with emotions. So we use that term, it's fairly vague, but just that ability to accept, you know, to label, experience, accept, and cope with whatever's going on inside you and your feelings. That, that, that is a real fundamental issue for a lot of the people we work with. It's, it's, it's a problem that a lot of people have, but in this particular population, it's being expressed in a way that's particularly dangerous to others and harmful to others. I think this way, not just about men, but about a lot of, uh, you know, um, uh, women too, but it seems to me our expectations and what we're rewarded for, for public behavior is different from what our expectations are and what we're rewarded for in private behavior. Does that make sense? And if so, is that, does that factor into, again, the, the man, I mean, men aren't born abusers. So, yeah. you know, what, what formulates an abusive um, person? Yeah. For some of our, um, some of the people that we work with and some abusers, I think this matches what you're saying really well is that they may show a lot of vulnerability actually in their relationships. So some of them have, um, you know, expressed a lot of some of those emotions, but they've done it in a way where their logic is, you're supposed to fix this for me. So if I feel jealous, if I feel hurt, if I feel insecure, it's somehow your job to get rid of that feeling for me. It's not my job to sort of accept it, cope with it, you know, and, and figure out what I'm going to do about it. And so we see that a lot, actually, that, and that, at that, um, that kind of fits with what you're saying because outside they're not acting that way. They're not showing that face to the world, but they they are showing that face to their partners or certain versions of it. And then they're using that as a justification again, to sort of control and demand and expect that, you know, you're, you're going to you know not do the things that make me uncomfortable. I don't want you talking to that person or hanging around with those people, or I don't want you wearing that outfit or doing this on, you know, Facebook. So, you know, it, it, but but what's being expressed is that it's because I I don't like the way I feel when you do those things, right? So that's another version of that, and that's usually not the way they're presenting themselves out in the world at all. Yeah. Well, and I think that whole scenario is kind of reinforced by uh, women's role. I mean, certainly women's roles have changed a lot in the last fifty years, um, but I think there is still a very um, significant pressure 
for the woman to take care of the social, the emotional in a relationship. I mean, it's just like slap that on her shoulders, you know, as soon as she gets into a relationship, that's her responsibility, whether she rails against it or not. And so then that would reinforce the expectation of the man of, of you know, who's having those feelings of you need to take care of this, you know, and it, it's on you. Um, and it's so it seems like the deck is kind of stacked to put it, you know, the expectation for taking care of these things on the woman's shoulders. Um, yeah. And, and that's another example where, again, you might get a short term effect mm-hmm. and uh, where, you know, that seems like that works to reassure the person or help them feel better for the time being. But the long term effect is potentially not toxic for the relationship because it's based on a, a an unsustainable logic of how you relate to people that it's your job to fix me or it's your job to fix how I feel um, when my feelings are, you know, um, it could be based on something that's not even close to reality, like mm-hmm. like we see with a lot of jealousy and insecurity. Yeah. And although I suspect that a lot of women just go along with that because it's easier uh, than the arguing or the fighting or the whatever, or, you know, the, it, it, many people just go along with stuff because it's easier. But the long-term effect is there is escalation um in domestic violence scenarios in general so i would imagine there's escalation in his expectations and his behavior if um that is i keep using the word reinforced but i can't think of a better word (laughs) you know uh subtly uh, you know at at the beginning of the relationship Uh, yeah yeah it might have seemed like kindness at first and it might have been gestures of concern and caring Uh, but then it can become it can be become a, a function of being intimidated too into into doing those sorts of things, and um, as as the situation escalates, there's mm-hmm. a lot more coercion that's part of it as well. And so I, I think that's it's tricky because it's also you know there's a lot of different aspects of that. We see that it's a it's part of maturation, right? For people to to learn how to deal with things like feeling jealous in a relationship and to learn to cope with that. It's something that most people face and, and confront at various points in life. Um, so that still leads back to why is it that that some of these individuals are so poor at doing it, whereas other people muddle through and and get it get it down and then learn to cope, right, and learn to trust. And so that kind of leads back to one of the innovations that I was mentioning is that we realize that behind the scenes for a lot of domestic violence offenders there are there is trauma and poor and adverse childhood experiences that are part of what um, is maybe has compromised some of the capacity to do these things more effectively. So we find that a lot of our, um, uh, a lot of the clients we work with in those settings have, um, have a lot of history of, of being abused, witnessing abuse, having poor attachments in their childhood, in some cases having you know, parents who had a lot of problems or difficulties. So there's, there's a lot of different versions of it, but but that's part of what's behind the scenes for a lot of our um, clients. And we know that um, other types of trauma can also increase the risk that people act abusively, like um, combat-related um, PTSD, et cetera. So, um, so part of what's happening there is that people you know, don't have the sort of um, same ability to trust, to they, they, the desire to want to be in control of things you know, that, that's a, that can result from trauma because trauma in traumatic situations, we're usually very out of control of things. And so that can make people really want to 
exercise that control over other people. So there's some of these themes that we see in, um, in a lot of the people we work with. And so that's part of what we, we think are, is going on behind, behind the scenes um, that helps explain why, you know, when, when confronted with a normal experience that might make someone jealous, why is this person unable to get past it, unable to trust? Why do they have to exercise such control and coercion where someone else, you know, is also finds it uncomfortable and unpleasant, but they're able to cope and they're able to get past it and they're able to move on. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned the ACES study. I, I actually had Dr. Vincent Paletti on the show mm-hmm. um, and uh, he, delightful man. Have you ever had an opportunity to meet? Yes, I have. I've oh, heard, I've just a delightful man. Um, and I didn't specifically ask him about perpetrators of domestic violence. Um, so it's interesting that you you mentioned that he, um, you know, he, he, he we're finally see. I asked him. I said, "How come uh, you know it's taken thirty years for people to uh, you know embrace this?" And he goes, "I don't know." And doctors are the worst. <laughs> wow. he, said, he said that it's taken them longer. <laughs> so uh, that's just a, a, a little story aside. But it's interesting that you mentioned the adverse childhood experiences because I just hadn't really put those two together. Um, but we do know from uh, Dr. Valetti's studies and others uh, that what happens in childhood can have a huge impact. Saying that though, I am kind of being a little cautious because I hear, oh, okay, bad things happen in childhood. I hear, hear, heard you earlier talking about, well, I don't feel good about myself. I appreciate that all those things could be taking place in a perpetrator, but a part of me wants to say, yes, but. Yes, but. Yeah. So what? like, so, so what? Why that exactly. okay for you to act this way? Right? Exactly. I think that's really important. And that's, you know, we, we all socially have to understand that that doesn't excuse this in any way. Um, we're trying to understand so that we can try to help. But it, but it's always comes back to people having to take responsibility uh, for the way that we act or the way they act toward other uh, people, and um, be and having systems that help hold people accountable um, for that, and and um, and don't say that it's just okay. And and a lot of times, I think survivors can get trapped in that as well. You know, knowing that they the, the abusive partner has these horrible experiences or horrible past, and other people don't understand. And, and, you know, there's a lot of that that can be the reality that they're experiencing, but it's, it's, um, it can't, it can't be an excuse. It can't be, you know, making any of this seem okay or, or, um, uh, you know, we have to make sure that that's never, um, it's not, it's, it's never seen as an acceptable behavior or approach to to deal with these things. So I hope I didn't convey that. Oh, no, no, no. I just, yeah, that's, that's really important. And and we have all of our counseling programs have to sort of start with that premise that that this is not, Mm -hmm. there's always other ways to deal with things. There's always other ways to respond that are not abusive and violent and that we're trying to help people, you know, understand what those are and, and use those, those approaches. I want to step back a little bit when you were talking about perpetrators seeing only negative effects of their behavior, uh, not the positive effects of getting their way, getting, you know, control, getting all that other stuff. They just didn't seem to see that in, in your assessments uh, or your, your initial uh, assessment with them. Uh, instead, they saw these, these um, 
negative effects of being arrested, having to come to treatment, you know, all this other stuff. But all of those are kind of short-term things. Does that make a difference in treatment that they see the short-term stuff as the bad stuff rather than the long-term stuff of the relationship with the children or the relationship with the wife or the, you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. When we would do these groups and talk about the pros and cons, we would get, you know, a bunch of guys in a, in a room. And so we would list all the different things. So some people would see those effects. Some people would have insight into, you know, this is going to have a negative impact on my child or I witnessed things like this and it had a bad effect on me. Some of them understand that that's why their partner has left them or is threatening to leave them. So, and some of them also know that this does, they, that um, it creates a sense of shame for them, that they're not proud of that behavior. So we see the range. So we see some people only focused on the tangible you know, I got to come here. I got to pay for this counseling. I got to go to deal with my probation agent. So you'd see some people who can only, who only really are processing it at that level um, and still blaming other people for what they're doing. And then you'd see some who really did have a more um, three-dimensional understanding of what, what this meant. And, and by the way, when we would have this conversation, people would eventually acknowledge what they're getting out of it too. So it's not like they don't see that. They don't start with that. But they would eventually be able to see, you know, that there are things that they're that they're experiencing, like you mentioned, some of those short term reinforcers or short term effects um, that that kind of keeps them doing it and and is is getting their way in some way or getting something to happen that they want at that moment. Um, But obviously, that's not not the long term. Um, Very few of them sort of say that that's the right way to get, go about it in the long term. Which doesn't necessarily mean that they really believe that. I mean, we all right. give answers that we think <laughs> will right. reflect well on us. <laughs> I know so I've the done talk it to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. I, I've done it myself. Just, you know, ask me how much I weigh. I'll, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> so very Ask me if I look good today, right? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, ask me if this is my natural hair color, you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so we all do that and, and abusers are the same as other human beings in many ways. Um, but I have often heard adjectives applied to abusers. Um, I have heard adjectives like selfish and narcissistic, um, anger control. How many of those adjectives are accurate or does it just depend on the abuser? Uh, yeah, oh, I, and some, personality disorder. I've heard that. Personality disorders. Yeah, yes. yeah, I mean, it's all of the above, right? It's all of the above, but not in every case. And, and that's one of the things I think it's really important to remember when we're trying to help survivors as well, is that we really have to, um, you know, tune in and understand their specific experience, circumstances, and how they view what's going on with their partner. Because I think there's been a tendency to try to paint everybody with a single brush, Um and, and the other thing I mentioned is that a lot of what we know about um, abusers or domestic violence offenders, um, it comes from, um, for example, working with survivors who are in some of the most difficult and dire circumstances. So people who have needed to go to shelter, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, th- their, their experiences are often, you know, uh, very scary, very intimidating. Their partners are often having all of the characteristics you've talked about with being very self-centered and narcissistic and maybe not having much conscience 
So, so there are situations where, you know, we're really dealing with the worst kind of in most dangerous and scary realities that people are facing. But um, when we, for example, interview the partners of the men that were in our counseling program for domestic violence, um, only about one in five of them have ever had any help of the survivors, the partners, only about one in five of them have ever gotten any help from a domestic violence agency. So 80% of them have never had any other interactions other than the fact that their partner is getting um, counseling from a domestic violence program. And, and only uh, about uh, five or 10% of them have ever been in shelter. So we're looking at, you know, sort of a different piece of the elephant, if you will, or different parts of the elephant. And so we would see a much broader range of circumstances from situations where about one in 10 of the survivors would tell us, he's never actually hit me. I've ne there's never been any physical um, abuse or violence, not to minimize the emotional and psychological abuse, which can be equally, or even in some cases more um, impactful, um, but, but you know, the sort of stereotype that they're all, you know, repeatedly and frequently physically violent, that, that doesn't fit for everybody. Um, uh, and some of them, there's been a single incident that was really different in their minds from everything else. So that this was not normal um, uh, in, their, in, in the survivor's perspective. And then others of them, it is, it is normal. It's what's happening all the time and very frequently, right? And, and so it is, so when we talk about this, sometimes I like to think that some of the guys that we would work with, it really is kind of in their character and it's part of sort of who they are and how they relate to be this sort of quote unquote abuser. And then for other people, it's actually not, that's not their typical approach and not the way that they typically relate. And there's a lot of things that maybe have built up and happened and they, and they had an incident where they, they engaged in abuse and um, they, you know, they need to understand that and, and not continue doing that. Um, and, and it's really, again, not to minimize that, but to say that there's, there's a wide continuum and a wide range of different situations and types of people we would encounter. Um, and so that's just important to, con to consider because, you know, um, sometimes we like to simplify, sort of make everybody seem like they're the same. Um, and um, there may be some similarities and some things that we're all, you know, residing in a similar cultural context, for example, that's um, either supporting this or not, but there are other ways in which people are very, are pretty different and, um, and, and, um, and the level of the problem is different. You um, alluded to, but didn't use the words coercive control, um, but obviously if most perpetrators get treatment based on court order, not through self-motivation, the only abusers that are going to get treatment are the ones who have engaged in physical violence because that's illegal. Mm -hmm. Coercion, coercive control, and all of those other uh, things that that and uh, um, the umbrella that, that covers that, um, those are not illegal, but they are highly destructive and ruinous behaviors. Um, what's, uh, how can we get those people into treatment? Only by making coercive control illegal? Some states have, not every, I think there's only three mm -hmm. states that have though. Um, so where, where does that come in? And, and you said most of the uh, victims that you've encountered, there's only a small percentage that actually said there was physical violence involved. I, how? No, no, there was a small percentage you say there's not physical Oh, that, that, that there was not. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but I, I was just using that to represent the fact that we have a broad continuum yeah. of people that we would see. Yeah. 
from some who have not been physically assaulted at all to people who have been frequently and severely physically violent and sort of every everything in between. So and, the people and, you're seeing in treatment are yes. at that end of the spectrum where they've been arrested for the most part and yes. uh, have that means that they have engaged in physical violence of some sort. But there's a huge contingent of, of abusers out there that are only using you know, the gaslighting and the humiliating and the berating and the financial and all of that kind of stuff what does that? Yeah, I think that prevention is critical that we have, you know, we have to do more to help people um, develop healthy relationship skills through our education system, through other, other contexts. I think um, we have to help empower, you know, people who are experiencing that to, to, to label it, to understand it um, and to have our, our, uh, alternatives and options available to them. Um, so that sometimes uh, abusers will get help because their partners have left them or are threatening to leave them. So when we see voluntary clients, it, it often is the case that we would call them partner mandated in the field, that their their partners have been the ones who have, you know, shown that they're, they're clearly not, that they, 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 they can't put up with this anymore and they need to, to do something about it. Um, and then And then sometimes the abusive individual will get help. Again, not to place the responsibility on this on the victim, but to say, you know, sometimes that might be the thing that that flips the switch for them. But um, I, I wish I had a wonderful answer for you because I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of this emotional abuse, coercive control, gaslighting, um, manipulation that um, goes on even when there's not physical violence. And like you said, most of the people we see in programs have engaged in physical assault. Although some of them might have done other things like property destroyed property or stalking or um, phone <laughs> misuse. There's a variety of things that you could get arrested for in order to the programs. Um, but for the most part, people have, have done the physical part, they've done some, or in some cases, a lot of the physical assault, physical abuse. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's been a big issue in the field, right? Is how do we define and think about the problem itself? Is it coercive control? Is it physical abuse? Is it emotion? You know, is it emotional abuse? Is it all of these things? Um, you know, is it on a continuum with the normal conflicts and arguments that everybody has in their relationships, or is it something that's qualitatively different? Um, and and you know, I you can make interesting arguments about all of these. Yeah. Personally, I tend to see what we do in, in abuser intervention as on that continuum. We're on the on the on the one side. It's you know, things that people say and do to one another in relationships, um, you know, harmful words, hurtful words, yelling, things like that, that we unfortunately accept as sort of normal um, in, in our society. And, um, but it's not that far from there to get into the sort of things that can um, get somebody referred to a program, right? And then from there, there's more and more steps that where it's, it becomes coercive control, and it becomes much more of a broad pattern and there's a lot more to it. Right. Yeah. So, but I tend to think of it on, on a continuum because that helps me also relate. Right. And to, to help everybody relate to the fact that we all can improve the way we relate yeah. to one another. We can all um, work on, yeah. you know, being better partners and more supportive and more understanding and less um, hostile or angry. And, yeah. and you know, this is something I that everybody can work on. I like how you refer to it as a continuum. I, one of my pet peeves is using the um, control wheel that is often used in domestic violence because 
in my experience and and people I've I've talked to in my research, it, it's less a, a circular thing. Uh, it often is, but it's not always that. And I, when I'm trying to explain it, I use a, a linear model. I use a line with um, uh, waves of different, uh, you know, up and down that line, higher and lower and lower and higher, and you know, because that uh, that explains it more to me. Because if that line is normal behavior everybody dips above, everybody dips below a little bit, a little bit. It's how much above and how much below and how, you know, uh, and that it's a linear thing that it keeps going over time. It's not just at one point in time. Um, mm -hmm. I wish they would use my model. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I like the idea that, you know, um, you know, how often are people getting above the, that line and yeah. what kinds, what ways is it happening and how extreme and, and all of that. Again, I think those, those things are, you know, at some point, maybe it becomes qualitatively different, not just a you know a little bit different. And yeah. and the power and control wheel, I, I like some aspects of it because I one of the things that I always like about that is that it the it makes the point that people use the physical violence that's on the outside of the wheel that mm -hmm. they tend to resort to the physical violence when their normal ways of manipulation and control are not working. And I do think that that's true for a lot of people that that they're they have other coercive and un, unhelpful and unhealthy strategies that they're normally using. And that when those break down, that's when they tend to escalate to, to use violence. So that part of the wheel and this, what I consider the spinning of the wheel, um, I think is, is, is a valid description for a lot of people that I would work with. Um, and that's obviously exemplified by, you know, the getting to the point where if, if she leaves, that's when things really start to spin out there. Um, yep. That's an example where, because then you don't have anybody to control and that whatever you were doing is clearly not working um, when the person leaves you, which is also important for people to understand that that is a high risk period that people need to, 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 to use some, yeah. um, some strategies to try to make themselves safe when they're leaving. And, and what I would say, again, back to the original question in defense of, of, of abuse intervention programs is that um, some partners would tell us that this gave them a chance to leave. They, they felt that while he was sort of contained in the program with support where he could go blow off steam and talk about this stuff with other guys and with the facilitators, maybe that gives some people an opportunity to feel like, okay, I can get out safely at this point. Um, and so... It's not always the case, and don't. Uh, but I, but sometimes I would have the uh, have people tell me that, or or have the sense from our work that this this did maybe serve certain functions that are um, that are helpful. But again, not always getting the full effect that we want to have. Right. I'm looking at the clock, Chris, and I'm going, I can't believe it's so much time has gone by, but um, we are slaves of the clock and <laughs> we're doing this kind of thing. Um, I did have two more questions that I wanted to ask you, one of which is what's in the future for treatment? What What's down the road? Yeah, so I think that we are developing new ideas and strategies. So one of them I, I alluded to earlier, but better ways to get people motivated to change. So some of the original uh offender programs, um, I think they're too confrontational and too much with a finger in your, in your face. And so, um, or they're shame-based and some people would argue. And so those aren't great ways to build the connection or rapport where somebody would potentially be, um, you know, willing to look at their behavior and, and, and do something about it. So uh, I've worked a lot on strategies to help motivate change and through empathy and connection. 
through working in that regard. And um, another dimension of this is better ways to try to help people develop those emotion regulation skills that they need to cope with situations um, more, more effectively. And um, uh, a third thing that I think is in the future is more trauma-informed interventions. So understanding what's behind the scenes for a lot of the people we're working with in the experiences they've had, the trauma, in these traumatic reactions, how those influence stuff like their ability to trust and so on. So, and, and all of these have, have, there are actual models of the interventions that have been studied that have been, been shown to have um, some benefits. So these are, these are some of the important, I think, new directions. And then the last one I'll mention is just doing a better job of comprehensively helping people who are in these situations. So like I do some collaborative work with the House of Ruth in Baltimore and their abuse client population, 60% of them are unemployed um, when they come into the program. Um, uh, and a lot of them do have, a lot of them have trauma, traumatic stress reactions. A lot of them have, are struggling with some other mental health concerns. And so part of what we're trying to study is, you know, if we can provide more comprehensive services and help people get access to employment support, mental health support, parenting um, support, you know, can we have a more, a better impact? And then the last one I'll mention is trying to use these programs to get more services out to the survivors. So we, this is a real opportunity. Like I said, 80% of the survivors have never engaged with a domestic violence program. So there's a real opportunity here to try to find ways to, to, to provide more, more support and more services to, and to help them meet their needs better. Um, so I think we could make the programs much more holistic, more comprehensive, and to, and and um, more survivor focused. Um, and I think that that's that's what I hope is going to happen in the future. That's interesting. Um, the survivor focus on uh, that. I, I'm glad to hear that. The only comment that I would make on the trauma informed uh, intervention or treatment is that some people see trauma in their past as not an explanation, but an excuse. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that? Or do you not see that? No, I think part of the message we, we always use in all of these programs is that we, we start with the idea that we're responsible for our actions. And so we have to all, we all have always have to assume that, you know, we expect everybody to be responsible but we also want to try to help people understand, you know, what might be driving them to act this way so that they can change that so that they can, you know, um, they can look at those, those issues, those themes, those problems. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because it does come back to that. Um, and I, I do, I agree that sometimes people use that as an excuse. What we would see more often is people are, don't actually draw the connection. They actually aren't making that connection, especially the guys, again, getting back to that man box. Um, they, they, they might have, have a general sense that some of these things are affecting their relationships or are in a negative way, but they often don't have a good language for it, a good understanding of how or why. You know, for example, when we talk about trust, you know, almost all the men in a program like this will, if you say who has problems trusting others, almost everybody will raise their hand. Um, and so, but why, you know, why, where did this come from? And then how do you, how do you um, resolve and work on that? And, and so that's an example where a lot of this comes from having people who are supposed to take care of you or look out for you, let you down. 
And so how do you trust under those circumstances? And again, hearkening back to our discussion about short-term consequences versus long-term consequences, it would be interesting to me to know how many um, people who, how many offenders who go undergo treatment and, and are informed and understand now about their uh, trauma, whether or not they can then project what they're doing onto their children mm-hmm. and under, have an understanding of that. Yeah, and, and that, that connection is a motivator for a lot of people that they, they are motivated to break the cycles. Again, nothing works for everybody, but a lot of people are motivated to, to understand that their children might be going through similar things that they went through. Um, and then what can they do to make a better life for their children and to help their children um, you know, break that cycle so that, so that this doesn't con- con- continue on for them. Yeah. As and they that being know. said, you know, I mean, obviously everybody knows that if you grew up with abuse, um, you are, you know, you, you have been exposed to it and there's a, a possibility that you will be an abuser, but um, most abusers have grown up seeing abuse, but most people who grew up seeing abuse do not ever turn into abusers. And, right. uh, yeah. you know, I always like to make that, that point so that we're absolutely, painting- it's not, there's no, yeah, it's not a sentence or something that's going to inevitably uh, express it that way. And uh, yeah, you're right. And that there's a lot of people who have been resilient, who have gone through a lot and who uh, don't have the same problems we're talking about. And so part of, I think we also have to understand that better um, and understand more how that works and why, so that we can use that in our prevention strategies and our, um, you know, in our, our efforts at social change. Yeah. Dr. Christopher Murphy, I have, we haven't even really delved into your personal research. I, I would like to invite you back sometime when you can find the time and where we can actually delve into some of your, your topics. But I think we did a very good general discussion. And I thank you for that. You've uh, uh, helped me because I, I, I told you when I first contacted you, I, I think I have a little bit of a prejudice against treatment programs for offenders because in my view, they were not working. Um, and so you've, you've, and I'm not, I'm not sure you've changed me a hundred percent, but you've chipped away at me there. Uh, so for that, I thank you. And I, I, I appreciate that. that's very healthy skepticism because we're talking <laughs> about people's lives and their well being and their safety. And so we need to be very thoughtful and mindful and careful about everything we do. Right. Um, make sure that w- what we're doing is effective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that very much. And it's important work. And I hope at some point we can figure out a way to draw other people besides the court ordered people into treatment programs because um, we have a lot of work to, to do yet. And, and I thank you. I thank you for coming on, to, on the show and talking with us about perpetrators, perpetrator programs. And uh, I, gosh, I, I sure hope you can come again. Great, I would love to. And I thank you very much for having me on. Good, thank you. I've learned a lot and I hope you have learned a lot as well. And. Uh, Join us again next week on Three Women, Three Ways. You're listening to Valley 104.9, your station for Valley talk and information. 
Hi, I'm Chris Heim, inviting you to join me in the Global Village for the best in music from all around the globe. We highlight new releases, rare and classic recordings, birthdays, holidays, and a host of features, specials, and unique concert performances, all drawing on styles and influences from many different corners of the world. Great sounds from all around the globe in the Global Village, Thursday nights from 7 till 9, here on Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest Eclectic Music. Music.